Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Forge. Today we're going to do a summary of the first nine chapters of Genesis. In my studies, I have found this to be a good place for a summary because from this point forward in human history, everything is different than it was pre-flood. I also want to remind you of some resources that we have used as well as some that I haven't used, but they are available to you. And I thought this would be a great place to do that. So first off, there are three documentaries that I recommended. The Privileged Planet was one. Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And Is Genesis History? Those are three movies that uh, I recommend to you. And I also used a somewhat dated book, uh, The Genesis Record. That's by Henry M. Morris. And again, dated, but still some good information there. But I would also recommend anything to you that you can find on the internet uh, from Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis. I also recommend anything by Dr. Jason Lyle of the Biblical Science Institute. Earlier this week, 
I watched his presentation on the Mandelbrot set, and I was just amazed. Um, so look up Dr. Jason Lyle, and really anything that he has, there are YouTube videos. He's also affiliated with the Biblical Science Institute and Answers in Genesis. I also made reference to a book, The Destructive Nature of the Term Race, Growing Beyond a False Paradigm. Again, the title of that book, The Destructive Nature of the Term Race, Growing Beyond a False Paradigm. I sincerely hope that uh, these resources are an encouragement to the believer. And these are just a few. I've not even scratched the surface here. The point is that you should get out there and do your own research. You can find biblical answers if you're willing to approach it with an open mind. And if you take the time to read these resources. Now on to our summary of the first nine chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, we saw day one. The creation of light and darkness. Day two, God creates the heavens and he divides the water into under water, which was under, which would be the seas, and over, which would be the water in the sky. Remember, I made a point that the earth could have been very different from the initial creation a water blanket over the entire earth, creating somewhat of a greenhouse effect and a constant temperature. This would make sense of the firmament that was over the earth, the water in the sky. Day three, we have dry land called earth, water called seas and grass, herbs, fruit trees. In other words, all plant life was created on day three. Day four, the stars are created, the moon and the sun are created. Day five, God creates life in the sea and the birds of the air. And day six is the day that God creates the cattle and creeping things and the beasts of the field. And man is created. Man is created in the image of God with God giving man dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living thing. There are a few things here to note about Adam's world or the Garden of Eden. Note that all the creatures are vegetarian at this point. There was no death. All animals and man lived in peace with each other with no fear. Notice also that everything is to re produce after its own kind. There is no room for evolution in this view, and there is certainly no room for this view in true Darwinian evolutionary models. Up next, we moved on to chapter two, and we see that on day seven, God rested. He set this day aside the seventh day is a blessed day. I made note that the first three verses of chapter two seem to fit nicely as a closing to the first chapter. And here in chapter two, we find details 
actually about the creation of Adam and Eve. So whereas in chapter one, we're told of the creation of man, chapter two begins to expand a little more on that. Notice that God made male and female. He never intended for humans of the same gender to be married. Indeed, the very shape of our bodies begs the question. There is no compatibility male to male or female to female. From the beginning, he made male and female as complementary elements to each other. And we talked at some point about uh, the seventh day being set aside and how in the future the Ten Commandments would come. And one of those commandments is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And there are groups, uh, Christian sects and others, who want to tell the rest of us who have church on Sunday that we are actually in violation of God's law, that we are not meeting on the true Sabbath. Uh, We are meeting on the first day of the week. However, if you study your New Testament, if you want to go back and read, um, or I'm sorry, listen to uh, the previous episodes, I give scripture references where we see the church from the beginning of the church's inception recorded there in the New Testament. They began to meet on the first day because they were celebrating Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is the day that he rose from the dead. In Christ, the law is fulfilled and complete. In Christ, I do keep the Sabbath. Not because I am a Sabbath keeper, but because I have placed my trust and my faith in Christ and not in false prophecies, false religions, and other cults that are works-based in their view of salvation. So feel free to go back and listen to the episode if you want more on that topic. But we see that man was made from the dust of the earth, and God breathed into Adam's nostrils, and man became a living being. We see that God did not do this for any other creature. He did not breathe into the nostrils of the cattle and creeping things. The human race bears the image of God, and there is no other part of God's creation that can make this claim. This means that we think and we feel, we see, we experience in ways that are different than the rest of all of God's creation. Humans are creative, and we make choices. Human beings operate on more than just mere instinct. We are not glorified animals. Certainly, other animals have some mode of thinking, feeling, some kind of personality. They do see and experience things, but they are motivated by primal instincts, if you will. And certainly there are all kinds of creatures that appear to have some level of creativity, uh, birds with their nests and other 
creatures as well, very elaborate and creative ways that they live, but they are not motivated by choice and they do not have the freedom which we enjoy as being image bearers of God. Again, we are motivated because God breathed into us the breath of life. And that is how man became a living soul. And this is the difference. Eden, the Garden of Eden is described here also in chapter two. We find that there are two trees which are mentioned. We have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll notice that our Bible begins, maybe not in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, but the very first book here in chapter two, we have the tree of life. And also the tree of life is how our Bible ends in the book of Revelation. We find the tree of life. So what we see in the gospel message is God restoring his creation to the way that it was, the way that it was in the garden. We find that Eve is created from Adam's rib. And we talked at some length of how she completes man. And a good question for you to contemplate. I'm not going to give you the answer to this one. You can think about this and come to your own conclusions. What do you think is symbolized by the method of Eve's creation? I want to challenge you to go back and read it over. See how Eve came into existence. And it is verse 24, which is often quoted during wedding ceremonies. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice that it's Adam who made this proclamation when he is first introduced to Eve. So finally, we see that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was no sin at this point. But I believe it's also possible that Adam and Eve were perhaps clothed with the glory of God. We remember, even though uh, I we haven't formally gotten into it in our podcast, but feel free to read the Bible on your own. Hopefully this is not the only place where you're getting biblical instruction. But Moses was permitted to see the glory of God. You will remember he hides in the cleft of the rock, as the scripture says, and the old song says. And God passes by. Moses really only gets a glimpse of the hind parts of God, but there is a glory that is there. And Moses' face glowed to the point that he had to wear a veil over his face for a time because people could not look upon the face of Moses for the glow that was there. Could it be that Adam and Eve had a similar glow about them? We don't know, but we do know that once they sinned, something happened and their eyes were opened. They became aware of their nakedness. And at the very least, this time of innocence before God was gone forever once 
they sinned. Leads us to chapter 3. Finds us being introduced to this creature called the serpent. Is it possible that the serpent was a dragon? Or that he had legs or wings? In verse 13, God curses the serpent to eat the dust and go on his belly. Uh, It wouldn't be a curse if the serpent was already on his belly. This is just something to think about. But what we do see here in chapter 3 is Satan always brings a question to God's word. He always brings a question to God's commands. Did God really say that? And we pointed to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this is exactly what the serpent uses in his appeal to Eve. First, notice that um, he gets Eve to see that the tree is good for food. This is the lust of the flesh. In other words, we desire to satisfy our flesh. Eve, you could eat this. It would satisfy your hunger. Second, Eve notices that it's pleasing to the eyes. And this poor, this goes right directly into the scripture here in 1 John 2.16, the lust of the eyes. Thirdly, she noticed that it was desirable to make one wise, the scripture says. And there we have the pride of life. Don't you want to be wise? Don't you want to know something that you didn't know before? See, God is holding out on you. But if you partake of this sin God knows that then you will know and all those things he was holding out on you, you're going to know for yourself. So we see that Eve takes of the fruit. She eats it. Many have asked, where was Adam during this time? And again, as we do this review, remember that we have in the book of Genesis a summary I'm giving you a summary over nine chapters. Genesis is a summary as many details are not there. The Bible does not tell us where Adam was during this conversation, but it is very likely that he was present. All that's recorded is what's necessary to know what we need to know about the conversation, but we know that Adam did not protect his wife. And we know that he participated in the rebellion against God. Adam desired to increase the boundaries of his dominion. And in doing so, he sinned against God. And as our federal head, all humans are now born sinners. Adam willfully sinned and followed Satan's lies. By desiring to increase his dominion, He actually lost it all. He actually lost it all. Remember, too, they attempted to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together, the scripture tells us. And this is a reminder to us that our work, 
our efforts will never cover up our sin before God. It's also interesting to note that it was no doubt the sexual organs which were covered by the fig leaves, again pointing to the offspring of Adam and Eve, that from this point forward, mankind will have a need of covering his sin because he is now born in sin. You see, friends, you are either born of the first Adam or you are born of the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ who came, God in the flesh who came and fulfilled all the law. And those who would receive him are, as we say, born again. That is not being born of Adam, but being born of Christ. In verse 10, Adam says, I was afraid when he is confronted by God. Notice that he says, I was afraid. Friends, sin always leads to fear. And like a coward, Adam blames the woman. And by doing so, he actually blames God. Later on, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, God, you gave me this woman. And she gave me the fruit and I ate. How quick we are to blame others for our own failures. It is within our nature. We do not want to accept the blame for what we did. And it follows then that Eve blames the serpent. But we do find a blessed hope in chapter 3, verse 15. We have the first promise of the Messiah, the Proto-Evangelium, as it is called. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there is also a list of curses that God gives. So we have hope, but we also see God's judgment upon the earth. In verse 18, God promises that the ground will now bring forth thorns for man's efforts. And this is interesting to consider when we consider what was placed upon the head of our Savior. Jesus Christ, they placed a crown of thorns upon his head. See, my curse became his crown so that I might inherit eternal life. Chapter 3 ends very sadly. We have the first death. An animal is sacrificed so that its skin may cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness. And as I've already mentioned, it is no coincidence that the clothing covered up their reproductive organs. You see all future gener generations to come from, from Adam and Eve would now be born in sin, not be born to perfect parents, but born to fallen sinners. And this is so important that you understand this, friends. Sinners beget sinners. And finally, God drives them out of the garden and he places a cherubim, an angel, to guard the garden. Because now, you see, they could come back into the garden and have access to the tree of life. 
imagine living forever in this fallen body. Friends, I am looking forward to a day when I will have a body that is incorruptible. This corruptible will put on incorruptible. This old tent that I'm living in right now with all of its aches and pains and sicknesses and all the things that go with it, that's all going to fade away. And God is going to glorify us at some point in the future, restoring to us the way that it was in the beginning. Chapter 4 finds us now outside the garden where we are to this day with an apparent sacrificial system in place, and we talked some about that. We're introduced to Cain and Abel. Remember that God does not respect Cain's offering. We do not know the specifics, but Hebrews 4 tells us that it was by faith that Abel made the more excellent offering. Remember, God looks upon the heart, and God knew the heart of Cain, regardless of the offering that was being made. This story is not about Cain starting his own first false religion, as some have speculated, but it is about the heart of Cain, as it is addressed here in chapter 4. Sin is always an issue of the heart. Before the action ever follows, the sin is in the heart of man. So Cain kills Abel, and we have our first murder Apparently, just as there was some knowledge of how God was to be worshipped through sacrifice, there is an understanding that killing another human being is wrong. And Cain lies to God about his knowledge of his brother's death. You may remember the exchange where Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? And here we have our first recorded lie. Why is murder wrong? It is wrong because human beings are image bearers of God. And to kill a human is to strike an image bearer of the living God. Next, we see that God puts a mark on Cain. And we don't know what that mark was, but it was a warning to all people who saw Cain. Even in God's judgment of Cain, we see God's mercy. God allows Cain to live, and God promises Cain divine protection. We're also introduced to a man named Lamech. Now, this Lamech of verse 19 is not the same Lamech that we're going to meet over in uh, chapter 5. The Lamech of chapter 4, verse 19, is the first case of recorded polygamy. That is, he had more than one wife. So here we see a deviation from God's plan already. Man thinking that he needs more than one woman to satisfy his own lust. He is also the first case of someone killing another person either by accident or, as Lamech claims, a case of self-defense. And we discuss the poem there that records the incident, and it's actually a boast. We find a boast in this poem that his act of revenge or his act of self-defense is better than God's protection of Cain. 
So there's this knowledge of uh, Lamech. I'm sorry, there's this knowledge of Cain and God's protection of Cain. And Lamech seems to think that his method is better than God's protection of Cain. In the midst of the sorrow that Adam and Eve must have felt, knowing that Cain, their son, had murdered their other son, Abel, we find a new line is starting as Seth is born to Adam and Eve. And as the timeline unfolds, we see through a study of all Scripture that Seth is in the line from which the Savior, Jesus Christ, will come. We also addressed the skeptical question, where did Cain get his wife? Feel free to go back and listen to how I addressed that question. One thing you can remember is that it is not until the Levitical law that God prohibits marriage to close relatives. This may seem gross to us today, but things were different in, especially different in the pre-flood world. In fact, even Abraham, the father of all Israel, marries his half-sister. We talked in this chapter a little bit about genealogy also, and as I've said before, the Bible only shows us the line leading to Jesus Christ. All other genealogies are really pointless, so they are followed for a little while in the Bible, but usually within a few verses, the lines not leading to the Savior are terminated. It's not because the people of these people groups did not continue to reproduce. It's just because they're not relevant to Jesus' genealogy. The Bible does not show every single little thing that ever happened, nor does it record every single person born to Adam and Eve. And this is something we discussed also in that episode. It is possible that Cain and Abel were over 100 years old at the time of the murder. We don't know. We discussed the possibility of how many children could be born to Adam and Eve. Even if Adam and Eve only had a child every two years, there'd be over 400 children. Just something to think about. So Cain would have married his sister or another close relative. Notice Cain's line is not followed for very long in Scripture. It does not lead to Jesus. His descendants will all be destroyed in the flood. As we studied chapter 5, I described what I constructed and called Adam's table. Of note is verse 24, where we see that Enoch was not, for the Lord took him. This is a picture of what awaits those who walk with Christ. Eventually, God takes his own people home with him. And if you'd like to read something interesting about Enoch, go to Jude and read verse 14. Jude is a New Testament book of the Bible. It is only one chapter long, and so we only refer to the verses when we talk about Jude. So go to Jude 14 and see what the New Testament tells us about Enoch there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 5. If you're interested, we did trace out the years and the lifespans and who belonged to who and who begot who. And I encourage you to go back and listen to 
the episode on Genesis chapter five. But for now, since this is a summary, we're going to continue on and take a look at what we looked at in chapter six. In chapter six, we learn that there were giants. Yes, there really were giants. We also see that Noah builds an ark according to the command of God. I mentioned both of these things because skeptics love to point to these things and the foolishness of these things. But I would just remind my listening audience that cultures all over the world have legends of giants. Uh, They have incorporated giants, both ancient and modern, into false religion and legends and fairy tales and other types of stories. And there are also stories the world over about a global flood. Some of them even have elements that we find similar to the biblical account where a man builds a boat, gets his family together and puts his family in the boat. and They survive the flood. Again, these things don't point to the truthfulness of the word of God. That's not what I'm trying to point out here. I'm simply pointing out that there seems to be a common origin. There seems to be this idea that came from somewhere. And as mankind spreads across the globe, these stories are taken with each culture. They are twisted from the truth. And you have this theme that tends to point back to a common origin. I believe it points to a common origin of mankind. Of course, I believe the Bible to be true, not because I'm dependent upon pagan philosophies and thoughts and religions and fairy tales and stuff to tell me that the Bible is true, but the Bible is true because it has been revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. You see, Christianity is a revealed religion, if you will. God reveals the truth to his people. This is why I believe the Bible to be true. It is interesting to me that there are facts outside the Bible that tend to point to the truthfulness of God's word, but that's not why I believe it. And conversely, the skeptic isn't moved by these things either. Why? Because the skeptic's heart is hardened against God, against the voice of the Holy Spirit. If you are a non-believer, and you're listening to this, I would encourage you to seek the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to open your heart and open your mind. Um, Unclog your ears that you might hear the truth. Open your blind eyes that you might see the truth. Only then do you begin to realize the truthfulness and the impact of God's holy word. So moving along, we get to Genesis chapter six, verse three. And I really did not get into this in the original episode, but again, here as a summary, I'll bring up a couple of things to you. We have this mention of 120 years, 120 years. Uh, One meaning here in Genesis chapter six, verse three, is that The 120 years, it means that from verse 3 until the time of the flood is about 120 years. In other words, God is saying 120 years from now, 
I'm going to flood the earth. Another meaning is that the oldest humans now live only to be a maximum of 120 years. And of course, Genesis 3, 6, 3 could mean uh, both of these things. It could mean both that the flood is going to come in 120 years and that God is not going to strive with man and he's going to limit the number of years that they live. We know that prior to the flood, humankind was living to be what we would consider today to be an extraordinary long life. After the flood, things change. While men live to be older, certainly than we see today, no longer do men live to be 700, 800, 900 years old. So we spent some time talking about the phrase, the sons of God, or the Benai Elohim, as is mentioned in Genesis 6. And I encourage you to cross-reference this with Jude chapter, or I'm sorry, Jude verses 6 and 7. Again, Jude only has one chapter, so go to verse 6 and 7 and read what it says there in reference to Genesis chapter 6. Just a word of caution here. There are all kinds of, I would say, interesting but questionable, if not false, teachings about the Nephilim. Uh, the return of the Nephilim and the connection with UFOs and aliens and alien abductions and bringing it back here to Genesis chapter 6. I would just encourage my listeners, if you've not heard about those things, no reason to go dig it up and look into it. Just be cautious. Just be cautious. There are some very strange ideas out there about what happened back here in Genesis chapter 6 and concerning the um, origin of giants. One thing we do know for sure that whatever was going on back at that time, God was not pleased with it. We see that there was great sin on the earth, that man's thought and his actions were evil continually, the Bible says. So God decides that he's going to bring judgment upon the earth. He's going to flood the earth. He's going to kill everything in his creation. We talked about the construction of Noah's Ark, as we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 15. We talked about how to convert cubits into feet. And really, no matter what unit of measurement you use, 300 cubits by 50 by 30 gives us a boat that is roughly six times longer than it is wide. And these are the same dimensions used today in the construction of barges. I got very specific with some possible numbers during the episode of Noah's Ark, but um, I'm going to give you a little bit more here in this summary. You may remember that we used 18 inches for a cubit, which is a conservative estimate. That's the lower end of what a cubit could have been. The Ark would have been using 18 inches as a cubit. It would have been, it would have had 1,518,750 cubic feet of storage. If we used 22 inches for a cubit, you may remember, that's only 4 inches more for the length of a cubit. The ark would have had 2,773,017.5 cubic feet of storage. The point 
that I was making is that the Ark was a big boat. I used to live in a city where there was more like a town where there was a distribution center, a Walmart distribution center was close by. And I began to imagine, okay, that's how big it is. That's how big the Ark would have looked if you could take that distribution center kind of divide it up into thirds and stack it on top of each other it was a big boat that's my point the ark had three decks and each deck would have had at least 101,250 square feet of total floor space this would easily store you may remember I talked about this 522 modern cattle cars like the type of things that you see on trains, if there's still any trains running out there that you can take a look at. So imagine 522 cattle cars. One cattle car can contain up to 7,000 chickens. Now I used sheep when we talked about it during the episode, but imagine 7,000 chickens or 120 coops of chickens or 240 sheep-sized animals. If Noah took baby animals, that is, he didn't take full-grown adult animals, he would have had even more space available to him. Notice that Noah was to take two of every kind, and kind is not the same thing as a species. For example, you could have the wolf kind, as an example, and from the wolf kind would come jackals, hyenas, coyotes, foxes, and all the rest. And this certainly narrows the count. By the way, what I'm talking about here are variations within the same kind. You don't end up with a new kind. And actually, this can be shown to be true. This is a difference between microevolution, and there is strong evidence for that, versus macroevolution. Macroevolution would state that we start off with something that is totally not related in any way, and you end up with a completely different creature. This is where the idea of missing links come from, because there are no missing links. That's why they're missing. You don't start off with something that's not a fox or a coyote or not of the wolf kind, and you all of a sudden, through the process of time, end up with a brand new creation. Point is, if Noah only took 50,000 animals, just 50,000 animals, only 40% of the ark would have been used up. So obviously at 80% capacity, he could have had 100,000 animals. So the point here is that God's command to Noah was very reasonable. It is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not some legend. It is truth. There was a Noah, there was a flood, there was an ark, and God commanded it all to be so. When you put the actual numbers to it, the task really does not seem as overwhelming as you may have thought originally. God commanded the animals to go to Noah's ark. And at that time in human history, there's no record of the fear and the dread from the animals toward man as we see later 
and scripture post flood. Let's move on to chapter seven. Chapter seven is next. It is interesting that we find, as I've said already, flood legends that are common in ancient cultures. And again, this points to man's common origin. While other flood legends do have some things in common with the biblical account, they usually always get vitally important details extremely incorrect. And as an example, we look at the Babylonian legend. They have a legend of a global flood, but they mess up the boat and they make the boat more like a large cube than a barge. The problem with that is it wouldn't float, or at least it would not float as comfortably as a barge. A cube is more likely to capsize. may seem like an insignificant detail, but try spending 40 days and 40 nights plus another 150 days in a cube that's not staying upright. Genesis chapter 7 verse 6 is also significant because from Genesis 5:32 all the way to Genesis chapter 7 verse 6 a hundred years passes. And this is why I tell you repeatedly that Genesis is a summary of events. You go from 5:32 to 7:6 and a hundred years pass. Imagine that you are attempting to summarize a hundred years of human history and you've only got a few verses to get it done. You would leave out a lot of details, but there are some significant things about the numbers that we find in the flood account. Also, I didn't really talk about this too much, but it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a number of judgment throughout the Bible. It is the number of completion. And next, there was 150 days of the ark simply floating. The earth is settling. The floodwaters are slowly beginning to recede. The layers of sediment are beginning to stack up one upon the other. If you add the 150 days plus the 40 days of rain, that's roughly six months. That's 190 days. And we talked about the survival of insects, which do not drown, or at least they do not drown easily. We also mentioned that where you have animals, you've got flies. Were there flies on the ark? I would say that without question, there certainly were flies on the ark. And of course, the fish and the air-breathing aquatic life like whales and things like that, they survived. One thing that I did not bring up during chapter 7 is the salt content of the oceans. I'm going to bring it up here in the summary because salt content of the oceans can be measured. And this measuring has been shown to increase over time. Since we know the relationship of the salt increase to time, scientists who do this kind of thing, and I am not one of those, <laughs> but they have developed a formula for calculating where the salt content of the ocean is going to be in the future. But they can also run it backwards. And guess what it shows when they 
do their calculations backwards. It shows that right around the time of Noah's flood, the water was fresh. I would point out to you that the scientists who have developed these things, they are not creationists. They are not attempting to prove the biblical account, but they come up with these kinds of things. They come up with that around 6,000 to 6,500 years ago, the water was fresh. And this supports a young earth theory, and it supports the biblical account of a worldwide flood. It also supports the fact, and this is a fact, that animals can adapt over time. But this should not be confused with macro evolution or the Darwinian model. We know that certain sea life, like crabs and sharks, they can live in brackish water. I used to live on a river in the great state of Maryland, the Patuxent River, and there were crabs in the river. Now, it wasn't salt water, and but it certainly wasn't fresh. It would be this kind of brackish water. Sharks have been found swimming in the Mississippi River as well. So do animals adapt? Sure, they adapt. But a shark is still a shark. A crab is still a crab. You don't end up with new life forms. You don't end up with some new creature that is not a shark or it's not a crab. And all of these facts are not contradictory to the biblical account. In fact, they actually support the biblical account. Moving on to chapter 8, I spent some time talking about human language as an expression of God. Remember, we used the word remembered. God remembered Noah. And we asked the question, did God forget Noah? No, of course God does not forget Noah. This phrase indicates what? That God was about to act favorably toward Noah. And I encourage you to go back and read verses 6 through 13 in chapter 8 for the account of how Noah knew there was dry land. Additionally, verses 20, 20 through 21, just two verses there in chapter 8, tell us some things about the heart of man. The heart of man. Even after seeing God's powerful destruction of the earth, this statement speaks to man's total depravity and the fact that we are born evil. It is God's evaluation of mankind. And finally, in this chapter, we read how God has set the times and the seasons in motion. Since verse 22 of Genesis chapter 8 until the present day, it has not changed. We have spring, summer, winter, and fall. Chapter 9 brings us to the end of our summary over the first nine chapters. We see that God has never rescinded anywhere in Scripture what we find in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. I would encourage you to go back and read what it says, especially if you are a Christian. Especially if you are a Christian. 
the second verse in Genesis chapter 9, that is chapter 9, verse 2, it gives us a division between mankind and the animals. That fear and dread that I made mention of before, we now see it come to fruition in chapter 9, verse 2. Notice in verse 4 that God commands not to eat blood. Why do you think he said this? I'm going to let you ponder that question. I'm not going to give you an answer. Why do you think that God gave a command that we were not to eat the blood of an animal? I'm going to assume that the vast majority of my listening audience, whether you are believers or non-believers, that you would all agree that killing another human being is wrong. The question is, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Read chapter 9, verse 6 for the answer. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You see, it's only the Christian or the biblical worldview that will give you a correct answer because it is based in unwavering truth. It is the unwavering truth of God and God's word. As we near the end of chapter 9, we are going to near the end of our summary over these first nine chapters. But we see that God makes a promise here. And the promise is, it's more than a promise. It's a covenant. God says he will not flood the earth again. You see, the first global judgment was with water. And I'll ask you a question here. What will the next global judgment be? Because there is another judgment that is coming. The first one was with water. The next one will be with what, according to the scriptures? I spent a bit of time on verse 13, which is the first rainbow. And all I will say here is that the rainbow is not a symbol for homosexuality. It has been perverted and it has been twisted by those who are haters of God and who defile their own bodies. But the rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant with man. God's covenant with man. And notice that this covenant was made, it was initiated, and it is kept by God. This covenant and its sign are not in any way dependent upon mankind. And I'll get into this a little more in a future episode, but verses 18 and 19 will eventually lead to all three major ethnic groups of people in the world. Everyone comes from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We will conclude this episode with a brief look at verses 20 through 29. In short, Noah grows a vine of grapes. He becomes a grape farmer, if you will. He makes himself some wine and he gets drunk. Here we have the first recorded instance of drunkenness. Notice that nothing good ever comes from being drunk. Noah was shown disrespect by Ham. 
The Bible does not tell us exactly what happened here, but whatever it was, it was not a good thing. But we notice that Shem and Japheth cover Noah, showing respect. And they did not see him naked. They walked backward toward Noah, covering him. And what follows is almost as interesting as the question surrounding the act of that disrespect. Notice that Noah curses Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses Canaan, which would be Noah's grandson. Go back and read this section and discover exactly what that curse was. But Noah blesses the God of Shem. And he states that Canaan will be Shem's servant. And we see that Shem can be traced back to Seth, of course. But if you move forward, you find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name later, of course, gets changed to Israel. We find David. And we find Jesus. They can all be traced back to Shem. Noah blesses Japheth and states that Canaan will be Japheth's servant also. If you are from European descent, you're from Japheth's line. And this chapter ends with Noah, his recorded age being at 950 years. Altogether, these first nine chapters cover a time period of around 1,650 years from the time of the fall of Adam to the time of the flood of Noah. Just a note here about these blessings and cursings from Noah to his children. You'll see this repeated throughout the Old Testament in places. When you see this happening, these men, these patriarchs, if you will, were prophesying. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, they were predicting the future. The test of a true prophet is whether or not the prophecy becomes true. And also, remember that we demonstrated the possibility of records being kept by Adam, that they were given to Lamech, who was Noah's father. They were given to Noah by Lamech, and Noah carries them onto the ark, and then he gives them to Shem, who was alive at the time of Abraham, though we haven't covered that yet. But the point is that by the time of Abraham, the written account of all these events only had to pass through four individuals to get to Abraham. Later, Moses would write the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and it is very likely that he used these original sources. So what's the point? Well, the point is this. As Christians, we have absolutely no reason to fear our defense of the truth of God's word. We have no reason to be ashamed when a skeptic asks the questions that they're going to ask. Ours is a much stronger argument in the arena of ideas because ours is based in truth. So I will wrap it up here, and I sincerely hope that this is an encouragement to you. May you, dear Christian, be willing and ready and able to give a defense of the faith and a reason for the hope that is within you. Until the next time.
again for listening to the Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in Him. 